Good morning. This morning we return to our systematic study through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. You'll make your way there. We'll pick up in chapter 2. As we have been working through chapter 1, the preacher, the author of the book calling himself the preacher, has been giving us an introduction to life under the sun. And the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes serve for us as a frank and unembellished, that's hard to say, unembellished statement of the problem with life under the sun. We have seen his thesis, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And he is working through in detail to find if there might be purpose and meaning in life under the sun. I've titled the message today, The Futility of Wine, Wealth, and Work. So that tells us where we're going. If you've made your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, please follow along in your Bible. I'll read uh, for now only the first two verses. We'll get to the rest of it, I promise. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 and 2. I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word, for the benefit that we gain from this inspired text. We pray that you would use scripture as a tool this morning for our sanctification, removing from our hearts and our minds the error and the lies that we have believed from the world, from Satan, from our own hearts. Help us to see and then to believe your truth. We pray that you would conform us to the image of our dear Savior. Sanctify us by your truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the previous verses, Solomon, the preacher, has set out to find purpose and meaning in life under the sun. He's given us the result. He's given us his, his finding uh, at the very beginning. And we will continually be reminded as we work through this that all things under the sun are vanity, vapor, a, a passing mist with no lasting profit, no net profit. He expressed that for us in chapter 1 verse 3 when he said, What profit hath man of all his labors which he has taken under the sun? What is the net profit? And he comes to the answer, as long as you keep your observations under the sun, there is no net profit. Solomon has searched for some lasting value by looking to wisdom and knowledge. And we saw that last time we were here in this book. And now in chapter two, he continues his quest. Now he will look elsewhere. In verses one through three, we find that he looks to pleasure. He looks to pleasure. He looked for 
meaning and wisdom and knowledge. Now he turns to pleasure. Verses one through three, let's read them again. I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, with enjoyment, with pleasure. Therefore enjoy pleasure and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainted my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heavens all the days of their life. So as we see Solomon's quest turn to searching in pleasure, there are some things that we need to note as we, as we understand this search for meaning and for purpose. The first thing I'd like for us to, to point out here, the first thing we need to remember is the nature of Solomon's investigation. Solomon is the wisest man who has ever lived. So this will not be an undertaking without drawing on that wisdom. Now we pointed out uh, when we began this study that, that I, I said I would do this very differently because I would run out of money in my quest on the third day. Maybe it wouldn't take three days. But the other thing is, I, I don't have the wisdom of Solomon, but we need to understand as he searches for meaning and purpose, he is searching with wisdom by his side. This will not be a mindless plunge into pleasure. This is a serious endeavor. Someone compared Solomon's study to a doctor who might carefully observe the advancement and treatment of his own disease. Solomon is doing this with a serious mind and a serious heart. Secondly, we need to understand this quest for meaning in pleasure does not strictly mean that it is a sinful venture. Often when we hear pleasure, when we hear desires, we think, oh, that's sinful. There are certainly pleasures, momentary pleasures, which are sinful. But pleasure, enjoyment of creation, is not inherently sinful. God has given us many things to enjoy. God has given us the capacity and the ability and the opportunity to enjoy pleasure. And it is not necessarily sinful. So we observe here the preacher and his pleasures and we should not go straight to well that's all sinful and the reason we need to point this out is if we think that well his pursuit into pleasure was all sinful we might come to the conclusion that sinful pleasure is vanity but perhaps there is true meaning and purpose in life under the sun for non-sinful for pleasures that are not sinful but this endeavor to search into pleasure is not only sinful pleasure but also pleasures that are not sinful so he is seeking meaning in enjoyment not necessarily not strictly in sinful enjoyment so we need to understand that as we consider what he's doing here along the same line uh, we notice that Solomon in verse three, uh, he does not abandon wisdom even in looking to wine 
uh, verse 3, I sought to give myself unto wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Now, some of you might remember a day when you sought to give yourself to wine and you left wisdom way in the dust. But this is different. Solomon is not leaving wisdom behind. So this is not a drunken binge. This is more like a scientific look at the enjoyment of alcohol to see if there's anything of lasting value to be found in it. As the preacher searches pleasure, it strikes me that the world in which we live, 2023, soon to be 2024, is following the same path, maybe not with so much wisdom, but following the path of seeking pleasure. Verse two, Solomon mentions laughter. I heard someone say not so long ago, let's go watch something funny on Netflix. Let's go watch something fun. Let's go find something to entertain us. Let's go find something to make us laugh. Uh, I don't have this in my notes, but let me just point out here. He says he found that folly is, uh, that laughter is madness. Laughter is madness. But what we're what we're going to see and what we are seeing unfold before us is this: that life under the sun, that is life without consideration of eternity, life without consideration of the Creator, life without Jesus Christ, is hopeless. Now that is the message throughout all the Scripture: life without Christ is hopeless. And for those who live a hopeless existence. I'm thinking of those who would uh, who would be atheists. I'm thinking of those who would say, well, I'm a nominal Christian. We would say they're nominal Christians because they might say the name of Christ, but they live as though Christ did not die for their sins. Those people who have no hope and then they laugh. What is it but madness? Madness. Solomon mentions in verse two, laughter. Neil Postman wrote in 1985 a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he considered the effects of culture, uh, the effects on a culture of entertainment in modern life. How does the entertainment of this world affect how we uh, behave, how we hear the news, how we react and, and interact? And then in 2008, someone uh, borrowed from that theme and wrote, instead of amusing ourselves to death, they wrote entertaining ourselves to death. Here this author picks up and brings the discussion, brings the topic to the church and asks what happens when the church begins to look like the world. But just the titles of those books, amusing ourselves to death, entertaining ourselves to death, we almost don't need any explanation because we live in the world, we look around us and we see, yes, the whole world is trying to entertain ourselves to death. We are trying to entertain and amuse and pamper. We're in a society utterly obsessed with entertainment. We have just been through a global pandemic where nearly everything in the world was shut down. And I heard almost no outcry. People were glad they didn't have to go to work. <laughs> I heard no, almost no panic over all the stoppages in industry 
But there was public outcry and outrage that the salons are not open. We need to pamper ourselves. And it really shows you where we are and how we live. We have an insatiable appetite for pampering, for entertainment. We seek pleasure as a reason to live. Solomon has done this, he's done this with wisdom. Verse three, he searches in wine. We may think about how people have turned to wine to fill up something in their life that is missing or to drown out some pain in their life. But we also must include in this, Solomon enters into this, uh, this study with wisdom and we must say, well, this would include searching for meaning and purpose in wine would include what we might call the food and wine connoisseur. The preacher is seeking that good for man which can be found under the sun. Now someone has compared Solomon's various areas of investigation to him taking us to different places. So when he searches for wisdom or searches in wisdom and in knowledge, you might say, well, he took us to the library. Here as he searches in pleasure and entertainment and in wine, we might say, well, this is, he's taken us to the public house. Now we will follow him in these coming verses, verses four through 11, to the job site and to the bank. The job site and to the bank. Verses four through 11. I made me great works. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, that is male servants and female servants. I had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. Verse 8, I gathered me also silver and gold to the peculiar, peculiar treasure of the kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delight of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great, verse nine, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10, and whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy for the, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And that was my portion of my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought on all the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. Here the preacher looks to labor to find lasting meaning and fulfillment. The things which are mentioned here almost in passing are laid out for us in detail in other places in the scripture. Second Chronicles chapter nine mentions some of these things in detail. Let me uh, just paraphrase and bring this to you. It says in second Chronicles nine, in a single year, Solomon got 25 tons of gold. Don't let that sink in for me. That's 50,000 pounds. I wonder how many of you have an ounce of gold. 
And if you have an ounce of gold, you had to save to get it. An ounce. He had 50,000 pounds of gold. And, and it's, I'm not sure if this is one single year of the, the, the modern American dollar valuation is $1.1 billion. I'm not sure if that's one single year or if that is annually. The way that, the way that it reads in Chronicles, it's almost <laughs> like it's annually. But I'm not sure of that, but really, does it really matter? <laughs> I mean, here's the deal. If you make $1.1 billion this year, does it matter what you make next year? <laughs> it, it almost doesn't matter. Uh, what we see here is that there is this extravagant wealth that is only available to kings. Second uh, Chronicles continues. He had 4,000 horse stalls. 4,000 horse stalls. And, and that at least means one horse. That at least is 4,000 horses, right? Uh, but, but I think it's more because he mentions there in First Chronicles 9, uh, Second Chronicles 9, he mentions 12,000 horsemen. Well, if you've only got 4,000 horses, you don't need 12,000 horsemen. I think he had far more than 4,000 horses. Solomon ruled over kings and world leaders would come to him for wisdom. And as they came, they would bring gifts of gold. That, that Chronicles passage says silver was nothing. Silver was nothing. This is extravagance. Solomon didn't. He did good for himself. He was enterprising, you might say. And Solomon didn't just take all this wealth and put it in the first bank of Jerusalem. He put the money to work. The text tells us he built vineyards and gardens and orchards and irrigation systems to water whole forests. He built a workforce of male and female servants. He had so many servants that First Kings, the book of First Kings tells us that a single day, this is amazing, I, we don't have time, but I'll tell you this. Liberal scholars don't believe. It's so amazing. It's so extravagant that liberal scholars is like, that can't be true. But the Bible is true. It says in, in 1 Kings, in a single day to feed the people under his care, it took 10 oxen. And some of you are like, wow, that's a lot. We're not done. 10 oxen. 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, plus deer and other wild game and fowl. That's a debt every day. Every day. He built houses. I bet he didn't build a house like mine. <laughs> he built houses. Verse 8 tells us about his musical entertainment. He didn't have Spotify. He did not have a CD collection. You know the best, I, I think the best music is live music and that's what it was for Solomon. Live music all the time. Male and female singers and instruments. Live, this, this, was, this was his entertainment. And in amassing all this wealth, verse nine reminds us that he never left wisdom behind. verse 10, we find something that you may not be expecting. You may have thought, well, there's never going to be any joy. There will never be any pleasure. There will never be any purpose found in any of this stuff. Well, in verse 10, we find that the preacher did find joy. He, he found joy. He found pleasure. 
Verse 10, whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Look, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was the portion of my labor. Joy was the portion or the reward for labor. Now, he didn't find the joy in the wine. He didn't find the joy in the entertainment. He didn't find joy, but he found joy in labor. What, what a tidbit for us to pick up here. There's joy in labor. As we consider men and women in our day, how many know nothing of work? How many know nothing of toil? How, how many do whatever they can to avoid it? Whether that's get the right education so you won't have to actually work for a living. Whether that's buy the lottery ticket so that you hit it big and you won't actually have to work. Whether that's making the right investments. We do whatever we can to avoid work. And then we want to sing with Alfred P. Doolittle with a little bit of luck. You'll never work. But the wise preacher tells us that the one place he found joy was by the result, the, the outcome, the effect of his labor. And in case someone wants to become a workaholic, this joy will also be a vapor. It passes. There is joy, but it's temporary. But there is joy from the works of our hands. Solomon gives us a glimpse of hope, a ray of sunshine, even if small, is, the, is labor the place where we will find lasting purpose, lasting hope under the sun? And then as we think, yes, there's joy here, there's some purpose here, as our hearts begin to soar at this possibility, we come to verse 11, and again we are slammed to the ground with brutal honesty of Ecclesiastes 11, I looked at all the works that my hands had wrought on all the labor that I had labored to do and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. Still no net profit. Vanity, vapor, striving after the wind. Now we know what that's like. I think we experience these things. We, we have brief moments of pleasure. We, we experience this, a promotion at work, a successful project, uh, completing a big job, and we find for just a moment pleasure and fulfillment and enjoyment, but it doesn't last. I mean, how long is it to go from the newly promoted guy back to the grind? It's just a few days. It's only a matter of minutes when you complete that big job or when you when you solve that big problem. It's a matter of minutes until the next job has to be done, until the next problem presents itself. And then we discover with the preacher there is no net profit. Even when we found a moment of pleasure, a moment of profit, it's temporary. It's vanity, it's vapor. Now remember, vanity, vapor, there's, there's use in it, there's good in it. But don't try to pocket it because it's not lasting. Solomon took us to the library. He took us to the pub. He took us to the bank. He took us to the job site. 
And now his attention turns to the funeral home. This won't be the last time that he'll mention the house of mourning and the, the funeral home. As we search with a thorough, a thorough searching, a thorough searching, as, as we search out all that life has to offer, we all must consider the funeral home. Uh, or we might say the graveyard. Because that's, that's where we're all going. That's where we all end up. <clears throat> this is what is expressed in verses 15 and 16. I, I, I have a, a personal pet peeve. I, I grew up I grew up going to funerals. My grandfather was one of 13. I mean, big, big families. And somebody was always dying. And from, I guess my earliest memories of going to funerals is probably four or five years old. But we went to a lot of funerals. But I, I have met people as, as I've gotten older who were like, I've never been to a funeral. Grown people, never been to a funeral. Never, never been faced with death in that way. And in our day, boy, don't we try to avoid death at every turn. We try to avoid it. We try to we try to cover up the signs of death. Death is coming. And every time I see those gray hairs, every time I see those wrinkles, every time, every time we look in the mirror, we see death is coming. And we try to cover it up. We try to avoid it. But it's reality. I got to get off that, get back to what we need to talk about here. Verse 15 and 16 express this, this look toward the graveyard. He says in 15, as it happens to the fool, it happens to me. As it happens to the fool, it happens to the wisest man who has ever lived. And why then was I more wise? What good did my wisdom, even in wisdom, and wisdom is profitable. He tells us wisdom is profitable. But even in his wisdom, he says in his heart, verse 15, this is also vain. Now, now, when he says this, the preacher is not declaring that wisdom has no value. Look at verse 13. Wisdom excels folly as light is better than darkness. So wisdom has value over folly. But at the end, at the end of life comes death. And the fool dies just like Solomon dies. So even wisdom, though better than folly... Even wisdom is vapor, a mist, which is and then is gone. Verse 16, for there's no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool. Seeing that which is now, seeing that which now is the days to come shall be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? It's a question. How dieth the wise man? As the fool. No one remembers a fool after he dies. But no one remembers the wise man either. I've been asking people, I think I mentioned the sermon a few weeks back, I, I've been asking people, do you know the names of your great, great grandparents? And do you know what they did? And I've yet to find someone who knows those people are dead and gone and forgotten. Dead and gone and forgotten. Some of them were wise. Some of them were fools. All are dead and gone and forgotten. 
And Solomon is learning that this is the fate of every man, woman, and child who ever draws breath. Death is coming. So he comes to this conclusion in verse 17. I hated life. I hated life. Now anyone who looks for meaning and ultimate fulfillment in life under the sun will come to this same conclusion. Frustration and disappointment. This is not a man. I hated life, verse 17. This is not a man who's about to commit suicide. He is expressing disappointment in life. And we all come to that. We should come to that. Voltaire said, I hate life, yet I'm afraid to die. I hate life, but I'm afraid to die. Death, death is the end of life under the sun. Death is stepping out of time and stepping into eternity. And for any person who has invested everything in life under the sun, death is the end of any hope. Death is finality. And Solomon says, verse 17, therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous to me, for it is all vanity and vexation of spirit. That vexation of spirit is striving after the wind. It's vapor and striving after the wind. Whatever wealth he was able to gather and whatever wealth you are able to gather, whatever joy you get from your work, and you can get joy from your work, but it is only a brief vapor. And Solomon realizes here that someone else is going to own everything he has. Now this was easy for Solomon to say because there was never before him or during his lifetime nor since anyone wiser than Solomon whomever Solomon left his wealth to would not be as wise as him. But do you know that may be true for you too? I mean it may be. You don't, you don't know Friends, we, we need to come to this understanding. All that you treasure in this life, all that you treasure in life under the sun, a hundred years from now, and for most of us, far less than a hundred years from now, it will belong to somebody else. What, whatever can be, um, whatever can is susceptible to moth and rust and thieves that can be destroyed and whatever might outlast you someone else will own. pick up with the preacher in verse 18 yea I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto men that shall be after me and who knows verse 19 whether he will be a wise man or a fool Yet shall he have rule over my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is all vanity. I have worked so hard for all of this. I've done so well in all of this. And now I'm going to leave it to somebody. And who knows? I will lose control. And I will lose ownership. Verse 20. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair. The word here is hopelessness. I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is 
For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein, shall he leave it for his portion. You see, the wise man labors and then leaves it to the foolish man. This also is vanity and great evil. Verse 22, for what hath a man of all his labor, of all the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun, for all his days are sorrows and his travail, grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This was keeping Solomon up. This also is vanity. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much you save, no matter how much you build, even if you've done it all to the best of your ability, even if you've done it all with great wisdom and great care, who's to say that the person who gets it when you die will have the same wisdom, the same care? They might just fritter it away. I came across a statistic not so long ago having to do with business and said if a man builds a business, the third generation will destroy it. I think the same thing can be said about a man building wealth. Three generations and it's gone. So Solomon sums it all up for us in verse 24 as we come. There's nothing better for a man than he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul to enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. When we read verse 24, we, we start with this, oh, there's nothing better than a man should eat and drink. And we hear that a man should eat and drink. And what do we do? We immediately go to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Like that's where our minds go. That's, that's where we take that. Uh, I would say that that was not said until much later. That was not what was in Solomon's mind here. Uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. First Corinthians 15, Paul speaks to those who say there is no resurrection from the dead. He speaks about that, that uh, false doctrine. It, and if there's no resurrection from, a dead, from the dead, that means Christ is not raised from the dead. And that means we have no hope for resurrection. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's a statement of fatalism. It's a statement of hopelessness. If we have no hope in the resurrection, then we have no hope at all. But long before Paul made that point, Solomon tells us here that under the sun, there is nothing better for a man under the, we got to keep that under the sun, that under the sun life. Under the sun, there's nothing for, better for man under the sun than he should eat, drink, and enjoy the reward of his labor under the sun. And this is not fatalism. This is perspective. This is perspective. The best thing you can get under the sun is the pleasure that comes from working. And even that is momentary. At the end of verse 24, he says, this also I saw that it was from the hand of God. This is what we can do. We can enjoy we can enjoy the fruit of our labor, and this is from the hand of God. Now, this is the second mention in Ecclesiastes of God. Chapter 1, verse 13, the sore travail that man endures in life, the weary go round, Solomon said was from God. And now he says the enjoyment of labor is from God. 
He is pointing us to the sovereignty of God, the travail of life that works us over is by the hand of God. And when we eat and drink and enjoy the work of our labor, that is also by the hand of God. The, the remainder of this chapter, he speaks to us about the sovereignty of God in all things. Now, verse 25, we need to look at and, and we need to see. The King James says this. I want to read the King James and listen and then look at your translation. If you're not reading King James, you're going to see something very different. For who can eat or who else can hasten thereunto more than I? Who can eat and who can hasten thereunto more than I? Now, if you look to your modern translations, New American Standard and English Standard, uh, you see something very different. You see something like this, apart from him, that is apart from God, who can eat or have enjoyment? Well, those seem like two very different statements. And the difficulty in translation here comes from two words in the Hebrew. Um, and these are they, this is a homonym. I know some of you have been out of school for a little while. Homonyms are words that sound the same, but they are different. Like um, flu, the bird flu, the airplane flu. But last week I got the flu. I didn't really get the flu. But you see that it sounds the same, right? Flu and flu. Um, I brought you flour. Well, that's F-L-O-U-R. That would be something you make a cake with. Or I bought you a flower. Sounds the same. Uh, this morning in Sunday school, <laughs> that was a happy accident. I'll, I'll share you. I'll share it with you so you can enjoy it too. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about morning. This morning, the A-M, we talked about M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Sadness, morning, homonyms, they sound the same. In the Hebrew, there are homonyms, and this particular homonym not only sounds the same, it's spelled the same, so it's very difficult. And what we think is that when the King James translators were working, they did not have an understanding of the second meaning. So they, they translate, and, and uh, context should help us, but then we run into other, other issues there we won't go into for the second time. King James translators might have been unaware of this, this second meaning, this homonym. So they translate the verse, and this is my paraphrase. Who is better to evaluate the benefits of pleasure under the sun more than Solomon? Now, that, that could be a true statement. Who's better to do that? Who has more wealth? Who has more wisdom? He's got it. That's a, that's a true statement. But I think the other translations, the more modern translations, taking into consideration this, this homonym, I think we... We have something better there. I think this is the correct one because it fits in with the theme of the sovereignty of God. So to, to, to read this, who can have pleasure in this life apart from God's benevolent hand? See, that's, that's how we read this. That's how we understand it. I think it fits with verse 24 where Solomon acknowledges that the enjoyment of, of the works of his labor is from the hand of God. And, and we who believe in God's sovereignty should be quick to say that God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. Whatever happens is by God's decree. When it's travail and hardship in the futility of life, that is by God's decree. And when there is enjoyment of our labor, when we experience any pleasantries in this life, that is also by God's decree. 
Who can enjoy anything without God? And we continue this trend of thinking concerning God's sovereignty over all things as we come to verse 26. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail together and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The one, when we read here, the one who is good before God, the one who, who is pleasing before God and the sinner, we need to understand this. Uh, this is not to say, the one who is good before God, this is not to say that any fallen sinful man can perform righteousness that rises to the demands of a holy God. That cannot happen. Uh, rather, we should understand this. The one who is... Uh, the one whom God is pleased to give good things. The one on whom God is pleased to give wisdom and knowledge and joy. And the sinner, uh, the word here means the one who misses. And you might think, well, that we've all sinned. We've missed the mark. But we should also think of the one who missed the, missed the benevolent, gracious eye of God. So verse 26 tells us then that there are those whom God is pleased to grant wisdom and knowledge and joy, that is to say good things. And then there are those who experience more of the hard things of life without those mercies and graces. And it's all at God's good pleasure. One man loses, one man wins. Another man wins, another man loses. And for us who live under the sun, we see this. Don't we see it? You see it when you're on the losing end and your neighbor's on the winning end, right? You see that. Oh. We, see, we see that in the Psalms. Why do the evil prosper? We, we see this. And for those of us who live under the sun, if we try to find meaning and purpose in life, if we try to make sense under the sun of the winds and the losses of life. As long as we're only looking under the sun, we learn that the preacher is correct and that it is all vanity. It is all chasing after the wind. What a great reminder this is for us Christians. What, what a great reminder that there are joys to be found in life. There are good things. Wisdom is better than folly. Light is better than darkness. Diligent labor brings satisfaction and joy, but it's all for a moment. There's no lasting value. There's no net profit of all that is under the sun. Because men and women are not meant to be fulfilled only in the here and now. We are created we, let me say it this way. We are not created to be satisfied under the sun. Just, I hope this makes you feel better about your dissatisfactions. We are not created to be satisfied under the sun. Chuck Colson said this. Life isn't logical or sensible or orderly. Life is a mess most of the time. And our theology must be lived out in the midst of that mess. Boy, life is a mess. And we have to live out our theology. And by the way, uh, everyone's a theologian. 
I don't know if you know that. There's a good book by that title, Everyone's a Theologian. Whatever your theology is, you will live it out. You will, it will be seen in the mess of life. And, and as we come to Ecclesiastes, Solomon is helping us to develop a right theology wherewith we might face the mess of life with good theology. This brutally honest assessment from Ecclesiastes, it's hard, but it's not in contradiction. It's not in competition with the whole of Scripture. It fits. What we are seeing here reminds us of other teachings from Scripture. Do you seek first food and raiment? Do you, do you seek the model King James is coming out? Do you seek food and clothing and shelter? What do we seek, Christians? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added. It's not that they're not important. It's not that they're nothing. It's that you seek, you focus your hearts and minds attention. You, you find meaning and purpose in the kingdom of God. Don't live as though this under the sun life is all there is. Let us hear the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes and hear them with an eye toward the gospel. We learn of the vanity and the vapor under the sun, remembering that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. See, these things fit. What profit, Solomon asks. There's no profit, there's no net profit. What profit is there? But we read in the New Testament, what profit if a man, if he gains the whole world, but loses his own soul? You see, it fits. It fits with the scripture. And the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the brutal honesty of Ecclesiastes. We thank you that you are communicating to your people and communicating to anyone who will hear truth. God, help us to receive the truth. Help us to believe your word and help us with our eye toward Jesus to put our faith and our hope and our trust in him. Forgive us, Lord, where we have, where we have had hope in anything other than Jesus, in money and wealth and houses and land, even, even in human relationships. Help us to hope in Christ. Help us to long for eternity with Christ. Help us to labor, but primarily to labor for things which are eternal. God, we pray for the salvation of our children and our grandchildren. We pray for the salvation of our neighbors, our loved ones. God, that is what we desire to see. More than, more than gains in our investments, more than gains in our, in our work, more than all other things. Give us hearts, give us loves for what is eternal. We pray this in Christ's name, for his sake.